Good to be here. God bless you all. I'm glad you're in church this morning. Happy Father's Day to you. We are continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to just jump right into it because I have a lot of things to share. And we have something for the fathers at the end. Uh, uh, if you have not been uh, with us, let's let you know. Please, in Jesus' name. <laughs> We've had technical difficulties all day today. Uh, okay, I just turned it off. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount verse by verse, um, and we're really taking the whole summer, um, there we go, <clears throat> to go through that. And we're going to pick up uh, in chapter 5, verse 38. No, no, you've heard that it said... No kidding? Yeah, it's last week's. That was good. Happened first service, too. <clears throat> yeah, it does. Yeah. Listen to the podcast. So, <laughs> How you doing today? We have, we have pie after service. We have pie for the fathers. So they ran out. So they didn't. We, we had beef jerky, but all the kids ate it. So uh, let's see here. That's weird. How do you go back to the old one? I don't know how. Huh? By the time I get this up, she'll have that ready. Okay. There you go. Verse forty-three says. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. (coughs) Jesus continues, says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do the same? Poor tax collectors. You know, Jesus is always picking on them. You work for the IRS. You know, we have a healing track just for you. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So this is the final comparison. We've been going through a list of comparisons that uh, Jesus has been doing. It all goes back to chapter 5, verse 20, when he said, unless your righteousness, yours being his disciples, he's talking about kingdom righteousness, the righteousness of those who follow Christ, his disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And as to illustrate that point, he went through a series of examples uh, they all began with, for it was said of old, but I say unto you. So these, these comparisons. And this is the last of those comparisons. It says, you have heard that it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Um, so this is a reference in, in this translation. <clears throat> why don't you go ahead, for some reason that's not working. Turn it up to 76. Uh, in this translation, different uh, Bibles are printed differently. And in many Bibles, if it's all caps in the New Testament, that means it's a quotation from the Old Testament. So if you see a quotation from the Old Testament, 
it's good to look up the Old Testament verse. It'll help you understand it and seeing where, where Jesus got that information from. So he's quoting Leviticus 19, verse 18. This is also the same passage in the, in the Great Commandment. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. This is the reference that was being quoted. It says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So Jesus is bringing the kingdom definition of that of that Old Testament truth. Um, the word hate words hate your enemy actually aren't in caps and in fact are not found in the Old Testament. Kind of interesting, <clears throat> but they were a common thing uh, in Jesus's day. And uh, to quote the commentary I've been using by an author named France it says it is. <clears throat> an inference which is easily drawn from clear Old Testament distinctions between the attitude required toward fellow Israelites and toward foreigners. In other words, throughout the Old Testament, because it was the the purpose of the Old Covenant and God's interactions with the nation of Israel was to preserve the lineage of, of the Messiah from Abraham to when Jesus was born. And so he established the nation state of, of Israel, um, the Hebrew people, and then an actual country called Israel that, uh, and then it divided into a number of is a kingdom, uh, and it was divided kingdom for a while. But the, he preserved them, and and so they had to, to preserve that lineage. They they treated one another differently from their enemies, and and this. In this case, they were real enemies that wanted to kill them and destroy them and conquer them. <clears throat> and so it was a military, political thing. But even in that, in the Old Testament, as not actually, God never commanded them to hate uh, foreigner, foreigners. It's just that they were at war often to preserve their own existence. Um, hatred of enemies was a popular attitude amongst the Pharisees and others in Jesus' day. So once again, Jesus is zeroing in on a popular cultural uh, attitude or issue and people that heard him knew exactly what he was talking about. In fact, a lot of people advocated the hatred of enemies. And one of the passages that, that they could have been using as a, as a text for this is, is probably, and probably the most likely passage is this verse in uh, Psalm 139. I'm going to read it and we're going to see how that applies to this idea of hating your enemies. Uh, David is, this is a prayer of David, King David, <clears throat> and he's praying to God. He says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you, against God, wickedly. And then David says, Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me into the way of everlasting. And so the popular culture and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, were taking this as a justification to hate uh, the enemies of Israel. But that's really not what that prayer is saying. It's speaking of God's enemies not David's personal enemies, yeah. right? It's a real clear there that it was not in any way. It was a prayer to God about the people who hate God and who oppose righteousness and godliness. 
not about a personal issue that you have with someone that disagrees with you or don't, doesn't treat you the way you think you should be treated. And then David says, I count them my enemies. So these are people that are God's enemies. And David's confession, it's really a confession. He's stating something. He's promising or he's committing to something to God that he will not side with those who oppose God. Okay, so he's declaring his allegiance. It's about David's allegiance. It's not about hatred of enemies. Right? And this is what Jesus is clarifying. He says, and that he will remain faithful to God and he's actually interceding for deliverance from bloodthirsty men, from betrayers and from those who wanted to uh, actively work against the purposes of God. And then the end of that prayer is something that's very humble because David pleads, you know, ends with a plea to be cleansed of any personal. He says, if there's any wickedness in me, start here, God. Okay? And so that's a godly attitude. So Jesus is in no way annulling David's righteous prayer. Alright? But he's exposing the use of that passage to justify personal hatred and mistreatment of others regardless of their political or, or religious or uh, ethnic standing. You know, Jesus is saying, you can't use that verse. And they knew exactly what he was talking about because they were using that verse to justify uh, personal vendettas. He says, that is not kingdom righteousness. And David was, was righteous in what he prayed. He goes on, he says, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully uh, use you and persecute you. Well, this uh, from the commentator of France. He says, this is a, there is a sweeping universality in the love Jesus demands which has no parallel in Jewish literature. In other words, Jesus takes this command to love and applies it to everyone in a way that was unparalleled in Jesus' day and all the way through. So He does magnify the command uh, to love others uh, beyond what had any, anyone had ever heard before. Previous verses that we've been studying in the, in the Sermon on the Mount commanded us to turn our other cheek, uh, to give away our stuff, right? Uh, to go the extra mile. But now Jesus is saying both our actions and our attitude must be loving. And, it's, and really, this is a, a more difficult command, isn't it? It's one thing to, to force yourself to do the right thing, but Jesus is actually saying you need to have love in your heart. Your attitudes need to be transformed toward those that are your enemies. <clears throat> All right? And I think this really is one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. Active love toward those who curse, hate, spitefully use, and persecute has been the basis of countless testimonies of Christians standing up to tyranny. Really. Uh, this is happening, it's happening right now in, um, in, um, in Myanmar or Burma. Uh, um, uh, there's been opposition to tyranny for, for many, many decades, and the church is actually very active. You don't hear about uh, Christians in Burma because they're not allowed. There's no press allowed anywhere. But uh, in a former Soviet Union, a good friend of mine, Dan Slade, uh, he's been here before. You know, he moved to Ukraine right after the Soviet Union fell. And there were countless testimonies that throughout the era of the Soviet uh, rule, there were thousands of Christians or hundreds of thousands of Christians that maintained their faith and actively loved those who persecuted them. And I've heard firsthand stories of people that, that people had their children taken from them and the people would still love 
the, on the police officer or the army officer that did this. And just, it's, just, it's just amazing. And it's through that, countless times throughout history, you know, protests are one thing, and sometimes we're called to protest. But the ultimate method that Jesus calls us to do is active love, heart in action, uh, loving on those that differ us, that causes uh, uh, Christians to overcome tyranny. But we need to apply this. You know, it's one thing to talk about the Soviet Union. Or Burma. <laughs> you know, that doesn't apply to anybody in this room. It's a different thing when you say, okay, how do we apply this in our lives? Because if we can't learn how to apply this on Mondays and Tuesdays in Kalamazoo or Portage or wherever you are, you're never going to be able to apply this if you're ever called to, to be a, a genuine martyr and to suffer uh, imprisonment or um, significant... Um, uh, uh, persecution. So how do you treat those whom you perceive as your enemy? Well, I don't have any enemy. Okay. How do you respond when someone says something negative about you? Because when somebody says something negative, that's a curse. You hear that someone said that you were... Or you treated... Wait a minute. That's not the... What, they're always talking like that about me. How do you respond? When someone says something about you, that's an accusation or misrepresent, or you feel it misrepresents. How do you respond when your spouse says something that you don't think is accurate? You know, do you, do, you, do, you, do you act in love or do you act in defense and retaliation? And I'm going to get it right, because right? that's where you have to apply this. Uh, in your lives, how do you feel when those, uh, when, uh, uh, when toward those who perceive that you perceive? Again, it's often our perception, and it's often not the intention of other people. But even if it was the intention, how do you respond to that? If someone's using you, persecuting you, or picking on you, right? Someone's picking on you, or every time you're around them, they they say or do things that make you feel uncomfortable. What's your response? Jesus says the response is to love them. They're your enemy. How do you respond to your enemy? Find out a way to destroy them? No. Find out a way to die to yourself for their benefit. Find out a way to love them. All right? Our heart response must be love and our actions uh, should demonstrate that love. <clears throat> it goes on. Jesus says in verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Not even, uh, do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you have more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so? So this idea that, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. <clears throat> Very important part. So we are to love our enemies so that we can be sons and daughters, so that we can be children of our Father in heaven. And this idea of living as sons and daughters is central to the gospel. It's central to everything that Jesus is teaches. Jesus teaches. It's uh, sonship is, is really the term, but it's gender neutral. Applies to men and women. It's living in relationship with God as His son and daughter. But more than that, it means that we live out His nature. We're going to get to that. Jesus said in, in John 14. Very famous verse. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through Me. And we, 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 we preach that and we speak that in terms of salvation. I am the way. Jesus is the only way. And we think to, to salvation. We're the only way to heaven. But when Jesus said that, He was not talking about the way to heaven or the way to salvation. Where was He talking about? What was the, what was the destination of the way? Father. To the Father. No one comes to the Father except through Me. And so, uh, to be Christ-centered is actually to be Father-centered because Christ's purpose was to bring you to the Father. And if you follow Christ, you will end up in relationship with the Father. Uh, and so, it's, it's critical that we understand that, that following Jesus doesn't just make us Christ-like. It actually brings us to our destination, Father, and we are Father-like. We, we, we take on the attributes of our Father. Because it's from the identity, our identity. You know, your identity is how you see yourself, how you define yourself um, as sons and daughters, or as Peter in his letter writes, as partakers of the divine nature. Wow! So, through faith, through our relationship with God, we actually get God's nature downloaded to us. Right? You know? I look kind of like my dad and I look kind of like my mom. Especially the older I get, I look in the mirror and I go, <laughs> how'd my dad get in there? You know? Jeez. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so I inherited certain traits from my parents. Didn't we all? Right? We inherit things from our parents. Well, this is what it's taught. That's true on a natural level. On a spiritual level, it's true also. And we have to understand our identity uh, as, a, as, a, as a Christian as a, once we're born again is that we are living out our identity as Christians, as sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. So Jesus then points out that loving those who love us is no different... Um, well, that loving those who love us is no different than the very people uh, the Pharisees were claiming to be superior to, the tax collectors and Gentiles. And saying, you know, you have to, if you just love those who love you, that's not fulfilling. That's not being like the Father. And so you have to ask ourselves, do we see ourselves as sons and daughters of our Father who is perfect? Do we see our actions and our attitudes uh, displaying His character? That is what kingdom righteousness is. That's what Jesus is calling His disciples. Uh, that's the lifestyle Jesus is calling His disciples to. This is really the verse I wanted to get to. Uh, I think it's one of the, it's a key verse uh, uh, of this whole section of, of the sermon and, and a key theme throughout all of Jesus' teaching and really the, the whole purpose of the New Testament. <laughs> if that's not big enough for you. <laughs> Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus didn't have a problem setting the bar high, did He? Right. I'm like, <clears throat> this is actually a grand summary of Jesus' teaching on kingdom righteousness. It's a summary statement of everything He's been saying up till now and everything that He's been using to define uh, kingdom righteousness. Now, I'm going to go through, uh, and I'm actually going to be reading is out of the Life Application Bible. It's a good resource. I've been using it throughout the whole time. But I'm going to actually disagree with a few of the points that they make. 
And the reason I'm showing this to you is, again, part of this study is to teach you how to study, how to learn something from Scripture. So I'm going to use one of my references that actually says some good stuff, but stuff I disagree with, and tell you why I disagree with it. And, and part of that is, that, you know, Bible helps our Bible helps, but they're just written by men and people, men and women, uh, that sometimes are influenced by their theological bent. And you have to step back and ask, is that really what the Scripture is saying? Even though, even though this, good, this reference book says it's what it's saying, is that really what it's saying? And then you can decide on your own between you and God. So, <clears throat> hope this doesn't confuse you too much. <laughs> so, how can we be perfect? Life application. How can this, be, how can, how can this actually be uh, applied? Well, we need to be perfect in character. And it says, in this life, they say, we cannot be flawless. Well, I'm going to put an asterisk on that, and I'm going to say, you know, that's true in one sense, but not the whole truth, in my humble opinion. Uh, in one sense, I cannot be flawless because I have been a sinner, and everyone born uh, is born with sin, and we have inherited sin. And so um, I will never be without sin like Jesus is without sin because he never sinned. But I disagree about that I cannot live flawless. Um, because I like Chris Vaughn. No. <laughs> and I'm not going to live without Chris. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't hold back. <laughs> it goes on. It says, so I'll explain this more as we move on. It says, in this life, they say we cannot live flawless, but we can aspire to as much like Christ as possible. Okay? So aspirational value. We aspire. You know, you need to try to be a good person. That's how they say we can apply that. And then it goes on in holiness. I actually kind of agree with what they say here. Uh, like the Pharisees, we are to separate uh, ourselves from the world's sinful values. But unlike the Pharisees, we are to be devoted to God's desires rather than our own and carry his love and mercy into the world. So holiness means being separate, living apart. And, uh, and there's a good part of living apart from sinful influences and worldly influences, but we, we are to live apart to please God and to influence the world, to love on them and to show mercy, not to be holier than thou. And so absolutely, that's one way that we can live perfect in that sense. In maturity, another category where we can live perfect, again, they say we can't achieve Christ-like character and holy living all at once. Well, that's interesting. That's their opinion. We'll talk about it more in a minute. But they do go on to say, but we must grow toward maturity and wholeness. Right, I agree with that. Just as we expect different behavior from a baby, a child, a teenager, and an adult, so God expects different behavior from us, depending on our stage of spiritual development. <clears throat> you know, that's absolutely true. And God understands where you are. He knows how much truth that you've heard. He knows your background and and some people come with much more understanding and knowledge, uh, and so they can live more, <clears throat> and some people don't. But on the other hand, I would say that I have personally seen uh, people come to the Lord with virtually no background in Christianity, and because they're on fire, they just eat it up, and they live righteously and powerfully almost from day one, and I also see people that have lived their entire life going to church every day and reading the Bible even every day and failing to do some of the most fundamental uh, Christian things. All right? So, you know, there is a sense where God understands where you are and your spiritual maturity, but He calls us to spiritual maturity. Okay? So you can't use this as an excuse. In, but, you know, in general, it's like, yeah, they're telling good stuff, but I don't think it's the whole thing. 
It says, in love, another category, we can seek to love others completely as God loves us. So again, an aspiration. We aspire to be really good. We, we really should shoot for the highest. You know, Let's just go for it. Um, <clears throat> then it continues, we can be perfect if our behavior is appropriate to our maturity level. Perfect, yet with much room to grow. Our tendency to sin must never deter us from striving to be more like Christ-like. Now that sentence I totally agree with. Our tendency to sin must never deter us from striving to be more like Christ. Okay, so if you sin today, you repent, you renounce it, and you begin to, to live right. Um, Christ calls all his disciples to excel, to rise above mediocrity, and to mature in every area, to become like him. Those who strive to become perfect will one day be perfect, even as Christ is perfect. So the, I think the implication there is, hey, when you get to heaven, you'll be perfect. Okay? But until then, you know, just give, give, give it your best shot. You'd be a good person. Uh, the difficulty I have is that Jesus actually says, therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus' standard, please listen to me, Jesus' standard for kingdom righteousness, He's defining kingdom righteousness, He's defining how His kingdom is going to run, how His disciples are to, how to behave and look. <clears throat> um, his standard for righteousness is the Father. And it's from relationship with the Father, through faith in Christ, that's how you get into the relationship, that we can live perfect. Alright? I believe this. Perfect, the word perfect is in the Greek. It does mean complete or to maturity. But that doesn't lessen the point. It doesn't mean uh, scientific perfection, that every aspect of your life is in perfect order. And if you're not in perfect order, then you're a failure, you're horrible, you're wretched. No, it means living complete, living to the fullest, living mature. All right? But that doesn't lessen the fact that Jesus says we are to live complete and mature like our Father in heaven is, complete and mature. Wow! All right? That uh, uh, that is the standard that He's calling us to. <clears throat> he goes on and says, Jesus is saying we are to live right now as though we are in heaven with our Father. All right? We are to bring heaven to earth, right? We are to live in His presence right now. Heaven is not some far off place that you have to take a spaceship to get to. All right? Heaven is where God is. And Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is within you. Alright? Don't run there and there. Someone says you have to go over there to get the kingdom of God. Don't go. Don't, don't fall for that. The kingdom of heaven is within you. So if, if we're to live like our Father in heaven, then we are to live heavenly. When? Now! Right now! Okay? And so I, I disagree or I differ in the application and the interpretation of this passage significantly from the Life Application Bible and from a lot of Christian teaching. Because I, I actually believe Jesus. I'm more fundamental than the fundamentalists. All right? I take this literally. <clears throat> Why? Uh, a couple of reasons. One, the word shall is not in the original, original Greek. Uh, and to presume that this can be only fulfilled in the future, because the word shale doesn't, doesn't necessitate that it's a, pre, uh, um, a future tense, but it kind of implies, you know, well, you shall. Well, that means someday. No, he says, be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's what it actually says. And it, and it makes a, makes it sounds more, it makes more sense when you put it in a sentence, you shall be. Uh, uh, but it's not in the future tense. It's not someday in the by and by you'll be perfect. 
to presume that this can only be fulfilled in future in heaven is a significant stretch. It does not fit with the context of this whole sermon. If Jesus was talking about heaven, then you could interpret it that way. If He was talking about the condition after the resurrection, then you could interpret that way. But this whole sermon is not talking about that, is it? He's talking about how you behave and interact with people that you interact with day in and day out. He's confronting how you deal with your enemies. You're not going to have enemies in heaven. You won't have to love your enemies in heaven because they're all going to be gone. So if you wait until then to apply this Scripture, you might not make it. (laughs) I don't know. I want to scare you. Too much. <laughs> so there. It doesn't fit with the context. It doesn't, it's not one of the rules of interpretation. Does it fit with the context? No. To, take, to not take this literally, I believe, is missing the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. Why would Jesus give us this long description, this whole, ever since 520, description of what righteousness, kingdom righteousness is supposed to look like, basing it, culminating it all on reflecting the nature of our Father if He did not intend us to actually live it? Wouldn't that be the very thing that He's been uh, uh, accusing the Pharisees of doing with the law? Finding loopholes that exempt you from actually living out the true meaning. I believe Jesus wants you to live perfect. But I made a mistake this morning. Repent of it. You're forgiven. Be perfect. You know, woman caught in adultery. You're forgiven. Go and sin no more. You're free from that. Don't go back. Jesus doesn't require perfection to enter the kingdom. It's by grace. We're saved by grace. Unmerited favor. But grace is also the empowering to live that favor. Okay, it's the empowering to enable us to live up to the expectation that he sits in, uh, he, he he puts on us. Um, he teaches that following him and coming into relationship with the Father as sons and daughters means we can and should live the nature and character of our Father, which is our true identity. That's who you really are. Say it's that's who, that's the message of the gospel. It's believing Jesus when He says you're a son, you're a daughter of God the Father. And if you if your lifestyle doesn't demonstrate that, then you haven't come to full belief. It's not that you're struggling with some sin and some temptation. It's that you haven't come to the place where you really take God, take Jesus at His Word, and really have stepped into that new identity where your identity is a son. That you respond to everything in the character and the nature of your Father because that's just who you are. You were born into that. You inherited it. Why? I just love these people. Why do I love them? This is like my dad. He loves them. I want to be like my dad. So, so how do you do this? This is my how do we live perfect, not the life application. Believe. Believe. You know, the, the same process uh, or means of living free from sin is identical to that of, of salvation. In fact, I believe we should not separate the act of salvation from the process of sanctification. There's not two separate things. You don't get saved and maybe get sanctified. Where did that come from? It's not in the Bible, alright? It's actually the same. Salvation and sanctification is, is the same thing. It's actually really hard if you, if you study this in the New Testament, if they're talking about salvation. We think of an act of salvation as you're saying a sinner's prayer and then you're saved. And then the process of sanctification is, you know, if you get around to it, learn how to get over sin. 
It's the same thing. What do I mean by that? <clears throat> when I'm saved, I did not believe. Uh, not being saved means I did not believe that Jesus is, is God or that he, His death on the cross paid for my sin. For whatever reason, I did not accept that as being true. I rejected that for whatever reason. doesn't matter what. I was at this point where I, it didn't make sense to me. I didn't agree with it. Whatever. I didn't want to submit to His Lordship. Whatever. But something happened. And it's different for every person. You know, it was, it was a powerful transformation that happened to me. But I went from not believing to believing Jesus is actually God and his death on the cross paid for my sin so I can be free from sin and get to heaven and spend life and I can receive his love and I yeah okay that act of believing is the same thing that we do when we're trapped in sin we're tempted to do something that is contrary to the character and nature of God the same thing that we did for salvation is what how we get free from that sin is that we actually believe that we don't have to do that because of what Jesus did on the cross it was finished. He paid the price. I'm not under bondage. I don't have to do anything that's contrary to my Father because that's not who I am. It's, do you see what I'm saying? It's the same thing. So sanctification is just living out your salvation day to day. It's not a separate thing. Does that make any sense? All right. That means you. it's free. The same freedom that you have in salvation is free to overcome everything, every besetting sin that you may have in your life. Uh, <clears throat> you know, if you don't believe you can be perfect, just as your Father in Heaven is perfect, you never will. That's what I'm saying. You know, I was thinking about during worship, uh, you know, if you're teaching your kid how to play baseball, you know, here's a ball, you know, and on the thing, you, you swing and hit it, but you know what? You're never really going to hit it very much. You know, maybe if you hit it once or twice, you'll be, and if you hit it, you'll probably just, it'll just fumble over there, you know, you know because you're never really going to, you're never going to hit a home run. You know, but, but a really good, you know, the real, the point is, man, to hit a home run where it goes over the fence, but you're never going to hit, you know, you just aspire to that. Is that going to motivate anybody? Yeah, and it's not true, is it? Because who knows, this could be the next Babe Ruth or whoever big guy, baseball guy, I don't know anything about baseball. <laughs> the Babe Ruth is the only one I know. <laughs> he's going to be the next slugger, he's going to be the next, next, uh, next Herman Rhodes, that's what he's going to be, come on. <laughs> Knock him out of the park. Come on. So you need to believe it. <clears throat> uh, okay. So I'm going to end with this. This is another comment. Very well respected. Adam Clark lived over 100 years ago, almost 150 years ago. I'm reading it because he agrees with me. <laughs> so <clears throat> you don't believe me. Here's one guy who's agreeing with me. Actually, a lot of commentaries do. A lot of theologians uh, agree with this completely. I'm not teaching heresy. Uh, uh, it says, Be ye therefore perfect as your Father, God Himself, is the grand law, soul giver, and only pattern of perfection which He, Jesus, recommends to His children. So that He's the only standard. <laughs> only pattern is the Father. The words are very emphatic. In the Greek there, if you can read Greek. Ye shall be therefore perfect. Ye shall be filled with the Spirit of the, that God whose name is mercy and whose nature is love. God has many imitators of His power, independence, justice, etc., but few of His love, condescension, and kindness, His mercy. <clears throat> that was a good part. Bless you. He calls Himself love to teach us that in this uh, consists that perfection the attaining of which He has made both our duty and privilege. So it's our duty, but it's also our privilege to become into the fulfillment of love 
um, <clears throat> for these words of our Lord include both a command and a promise. Can we be fully saved from sin in this world? Is an important question. To which this text gives a satisfactory answer. Ye shall be perfect as your Father uh, who, is in heaven, who is in heaven is perfect. So it answers the question. As in His infinite nature there is no sin, nothing but goodness and love, so in your finite nature there shall dwell no sin. Then he quotes from Romans, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus shall make you free from the law of sin and death. You're free from that. Uh, God shall live in, fill, and rule your heart. And in what He fills and influences, neither Satan nor sin can have any part. You need to believe that. Okay? He's in you. He's in charge. Finally, it says, if men cry out, that's impossible. Whom does this arguing reprove? God, who on this ground has given a command the fulfillment of which is impossible. He's not denying that it's not impossible. But who are you arguing with? You're arguing with God. But who can bring a clean out of an unclean thing? God Almighty. And however ingrained the disease of sin may be, the grace of the Lord Jesus can fully cure it. Amen? And who will say that He who laid down His life for our souls will not use His power completely to effect that salvation which He has died to procure? Amen. Okay. Thank you, Pastor Cameron. And you can hear